Many of you probably know that the Gospel of Mark has this famously unsettling ending. All through Jesus' betrayal and trial and crucifixion, this Gospel stays in basically very familiar territory. Mark's version of Jesus' last days lines up really closely with Matthew and Luke. It's only on Easter morning that things get a little bit messy. As in those other two Gospels, women come to the tomb to mourn and to show respect for their teacher and friend whose life has just been cut short. And as in those other two Gospels, Jesus' body is missing and there's a messenger there with words of comfort and command to go and tell other people about what they've seen. All still basically on track here. But then suddenly Mark's Gospel sort of goes off the rails. So they went and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Biblical scholars agree that this is where the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark end. In this version of the story, there is no Easter morning foot race to come and see the empty tomb, no appearances of Jesus to his followers and friends, no happy reunions and words of peace, just fearful followers and this unsettling silence. By and large, people haven't liked this ending of the Gospel of Mark very much over the years. It's too messy, too open-ended, too unsatisfying, and many have felt that we must be like missing the last page or something. And a couple of attempts to write an extra ending to the Gospel are right there in your Bible. And in these tacked-on epilogues, the women overcome their fear and do, in fact, go and tell the disciples about the resurrection. And then Jesus appears and scolds all of them for their lack of faith. And then he promises they'll be able to pick up snakes and drink poison without getting hurt. And we're assured that the good news is on its way out into the whole world. See, there is a happy ending after all. The loose ends are all tied up. You can rest easy, roll the credits, and play the theme song. The problem, of course, is that that's not really the way the book ends. It ends with fear and silence and that great big open door. A former professor of mine says that the ending of Deuteronomy, which we just read together this morning, is about as satisfying as the ending of Mark. I don't know about you, but I could imagine another ending to Moses' life here. One where he leads the people triumphantly into the land that they've been longing for over decades in the wilderness. Where he gets to kneel down and feel the soil between his fingers. Where he gets to settle down on a little plot of land and enjoy the fruits of his labor and grow old sitting under a grape vine, watching grandchildren play in the yard. One where this perpetual stranger is finally home. It feels wrong to have Moses' life end where it does. I sort of half expect to find a longer ending of Deuteronomy tucked in after this one, sort of a miraculous soap opera worthy number where it turns out that Moses wasn't actually dead but only sleeping and he can now complete what he started and live happily ever after where the loose ends are all tied up and we can rest easy. Roll the credits and play the theme song. But there is no longer ending to Deuteronomy. It really ends here with Moses seeing the promised land but not entering it, buried in an unmarked grave on a mountaintop somewhere in the wilderness of Moab. 
You might remember back from Sunday school a long time ago that there is an attempt in the Bible to explain just why Moses doesn't get to enter the land. The book of Numbers records this incident where the people are thirsty and God tells Moses to bring water from a rock for them. Not the the reading we read a few weeks ago with the water from the rock, but another similar story. Moses obeys, but not precisely. He strikes the rock with his staff, which which God didn't actually tell him to do. And in exchange for this grievous disobedience, God tells him that he will die in the wilderness. So I don't know, maybe that story works for you as an explanation, but I find it pretty thin. I mean, Moses did so much right. He confronted Pharaoh and led his people out of slavery. He stayed faithful while everybody around him descended into idolatry. He endured endless complaints and bickering from the people in the wilderness. He kept the dream of a new future alive through years and years of hardship. He kept on listening to God and speaking to God as closely as a friend, no matter what. One little misstep, one little tap of the staff in Moses' life of faithful disobedience just doesn't seem to explain this unsettling ending. It doesn't seem nearly enough to tip those scales. So I'm actually inclined to kind of ditch the scales altogether and to read this story a bit differently. Maybe the timing of his death and where it happens isn't punishment at all. Maybe it's just a very true picture of what it means to live a faithful life, journeying toward the world that God envisions. Because rarely, if ever, is that journey completed in a lifetime. Martin Luther King Jr. certainly knew this. In April of 1968, Dr. King had come to Memphis, Tennessee to help lead a a strike of sanitation workers. And he was invited to give a speech to supporters one night. He spoke that evening about important accomplishments of the civil rights movement up to that point. He spoke about the work of nonviolent resistance that was still needed. And in a soaring conclusion, he spoke about being on the mountaintop and seeing the promised land of true equality and justice for black people in the United States. It's this incredibly moving speech, of course, based on the reading that we heard today. And it's so moving because it points both to the heights that have been climbed and to the distance that was yet to be traveled. That distance was made painfully clear the very next day, of course, when Dr. King's life was cut short by an assassin's bullet. I may not get there with you, he had said in that speech the night before. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. When he spoke those words, King could not possibly have known what was coming the very next day. But he certainly knew that the journey toward freedom was much bigger than him. John Lewis knew this too. He was a colleague of Dr. King's and somebody who kept on continuing that work of building a more just society, first as an organizer and then as a U.S. Senator. Through this long life of faithful service, he kept his eyes on that promised land that Dr. King spoke about. And when he died this past spring in the midst of protests over the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery and others, it was abundantly clear that that distance is great still. After all these years and all of his work, Lewis was, of course, deeply grieved at the persistence of racism and injustice. And at the same time, he also understood very well that the walk toward freedom is much bigger than him. 
In an editorial pen just days before he died, he wrote this. Though I may not be here with you, I urge you to continue the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. In my life, I have done all that I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. That's addressed to you, of course, to all of us who remain. Lewis understood like King before him that the journey goes on, the story goes on, and you have a role to play. That's actually what I hear in those last verses of Deuteronomy today. Moses may not have set foot in the land himself, but this was never just his story anyway. It began with a couple of midwives back in Egypt who summoned up the courage to disobey the violent orders of the Pharaoh, saving the lives of children by the river. And countless others were part of it too. Miriam leading the people in a victory dance and Aaron holding up his brother's arms when they got tired, Jethro teaching Moses to share his authority and unnamed multitudes, learning a new way of generosity and plenty, venturing one step at a time toward a new way of life. This was never just Moses's story. It was always the story of freedom, far bigger than any one person, bigger even than him. And when Moses's chapter was finished, there were other chapters to be written. And the truth is, of course, most of the things that are worth investing ourselves in are like this. Whether it's the struggle for racial justice or gender equality or the rights of LGBTQ persons or a more peaceful world or the health and well-being of the creation or welcome for strangers or a more generous and open church or a thriving neighborhood. We commit ourselves to this work, not because we're sure to get quick and easy results, not because we're, sure we're certain where the road will lead, not because we're sure that we ourselves will ultimately arrive at the destination. We commit ourselves day after day because it's the right thing to do, because we recognize we are part of a much bigger story, and our actions, big and small, matter. Those unsettling endings in Mark and in Deuteronomy remind us that the door remains open. The journey goes on. So here, now, today, what's one action you can take? One letter you can write? One conversation you can have? One ballot you can cast? One song you can sing? One word you can share with another? Remember, you are part of that great story of freedom, begun long before you and stretching on by God's grace farther than we can imagine. And here in this moment, you have a part to play. Amen.